Oh, my word, friends. Uh, welcome to another Robcast. I have with me my longtime beloved friend slash brother, Kent Dobson. Welcome, Kent. Thanks. Kent is in the back house, and uh, Kent lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, I've known you since high school. So let me give you a little background on this interview, because um, this one, we're going to go all over the place. Kent and I worked together. Kristen and I and some friends started a church in Michigan in our late 20s. We were 28. And Kent and his wife, Mandy, had just moved to Grand Rapids, and Kent did the music. So we worked together for a number of years. Yeah. And we had all sorts of great times. Yeah. And then Kent and Mandy moved to Jerusalem. This would have been 2000. Three. No. Three. Yeah, 2000. No, before that, 2002. Okay. Something 2002, like that. 2003, Kent and yeah. Mandy moved to Jerusalem. And uh, that was because what had happened is we were in this church, but we started on... For me, it was like I realized that Jesus was Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> we started reading. <laughs> we, we started reading and studying. So those of you who listen to the Robcast, and you're like, what is this, this Teshuva word and Shalom and... and the historical context of the Bible and where do you get all this stuff from, what happened is Kent and I were working together and we started reading the rabbis. We started waking up to the fact that the Jesus tradition rests on the shoulders of a much older uh, Jewish tradition. And there's this endless pile of awesome gold um, with the mystics and the rabbis and the teachers and the history and archaeology, and um, so some of you have said, like, well, how do you, I don't understand where you get this stuff from the Bible. It all started around 2000, 2001 with my friend Kent and I. I've learned more uh, from him than almost anybody in terms of the two of us learning and passing books back and forth and all that, and Kent um, has even put out a Bible that's like a study Bible that has, like, all these notes on where this stuff came from and ancient commentary and all that. So we'll get to that in a minute, but a lot of it sort of went to a whole nother level when we were working together, and I remember you saying, I think I should move to Jerusalem so that I can understand better where the Bible came from, where this tradition came from, um, and so you moved. Yeah. I never forget that. I remember we sent you out, like, yeah. go, learn, do stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I'd only been there one other time. Yes. On a tour. Yes. On a, on a bus, traveling around, seeing things. So, you move there, and it's, I remember, if you can tell the, and to do, what kind of degree did you get? Well, uh, I, I have a, de- a degree in historical geography, so um, it's a specific discipline, discipline of biblical studies, that's all. And then, when I finished that d- degree, I went on and uh, took some comparative religion courses at another university there. So, working toward another degree. Let's start with the story with the rabbi who assigned you Genesis 22. <laughs> let's start there, because people right. will... I think that's yes. where we need to start. Oh, man. Um, first of all, I was starting to fall in love with Judaism. It was like this whole other world. Wait a minute. There's another religion besides Christianity, and they have most of the same books that we have. So it was... I was just... I don't know. It, I was I was starting to fall in love with this other thing. And so my first class in rabbinic Judaism, I was really excited about. 
the rabbi comes in, he's got his little kippah on, he's got his little tzitzit, those little tassels that hang down, and um, he's got his Torah with him. And almost uh, it, first couple of classes, we start to take a deep dive into into the text, and, and, and at one point he sends us home to work on the Isaac passage. This is the binding of Isaac, the Akedaz, it's called in Hebrew. Genesis chapter 22. Yeah. Abraham is told, offer your son, your only son. Right. Okay. So, so we're, I'm already starting to get the feel that Judaism uh, questions are important. So, And he says to us, go home and come up with as many questions as you can and come back to class. That was the assignment. So I went home and I was excited about it. <sighs> right in the <laughs> <laughs> I have Four or five, six, maybe. Maybe not even that many. The class, and they're, they're roughly, the class began to share when we got back together. Here are the, cl- uh, here are the questions that we came up with. And, and it's like literally you have five or six questions. Yeah, five you or six You read questions. the chapter in the Bible, and the assignment is come up with as many questions as you can about the story. Yes. And some of them are, are technical. You know, they're technical questions about a, a specific Hebrew word. Some of them are a little more general. And we get done. And I, I think we've just, we've leveled this guy. You know, <laughs> with, he's, I've never been invited in my life until that moment to ask questions about the Bible by a religious person by someone who loved the Bible. Go home and make and, and, and listen to your own questions. And when we were done, it was silent for a moment, and he just said, that's it? That's it? But these are the only questions you have about this story. You are extremely lucky if these are your only questions about the story. And he went on. He went on to say, you shouldn't just be asking technical questions about, this, about the story. You should be asking, why is God doing this. Do you want to believe in a God that tells a father to go kill his son? How come none of you are upset by this major problem? How can God ask someone to take the life of his own child? You're so lucky that this does not disturb you. And for something in me broke open. And it wasn't just that it was okay to ask questions about the Bible. I needed that. I needed that so badly in my life. But it was, it's okay to ask, to, to question God, to say, no, this does not make sense. I, I refuse to accept this. I, I do not want to believe in this kind of God uh, or to even speak directly to God. This is unfair. If this is the kind of God you are, you're not worth following. Yeah, I'm out. Listening. I'm out. And he was, and, and what I learned over time is that in, in Judaism, that's that's sacred ground. You're you're on sacred ground at that moment. Some someone who is willing to to take their heart out of their chest like that. That's that that takes real real courage. Instead of the party line, which is just believe it. God said it. Just believe it. That settles it. We're just supposed to accept it. Yeah, of course. If God were to come to me, yeah, sacrifice your son, no problem. I'll get some wood together. You know, I'm sure it's going to be a test. You know, the sacred holy ground is not. I would do anything. I would take a stand. I would be no. courageous. The sacred holy ground is no way I'm out if you're like that. Yeah. Just That's the, yep. where you're actually touching. Yeah. Just read the Jonah story. He runs from God. He runs the other way. No I'm way am I going to Nineveh. The point is to run. Yes. Jonah should be commended. Good job. But have you ever heard anybody say that that's that Jonah should have run from God? No, they say no, no, he shouldn't have run from God. He's supposed to do what God says. Go to Nineveh, preach. No, run, run. So the so 
what happened to you is all of a sudden the actual normal, we might even say healthy human response to this absurdity, violence, and tragedy, whatever the thing is human within you that is repulsed, offended, wants to run the other way, that's actually the holy divine place. Yeah. And be, the, be a human being. And the, the being an actual human being and the polished, calm, just keep stating the truths and be whatever, that's actually the deviation. Yeah. And you can see it in, you can see it in Jesus sometimes, like when, the, when uh, a few disciples or one, or one person comes to him and says, can I follow you? And Jesus says, I guess, okay. And then the guy says he has to go bury his father. And he's like, let the dead bury their dead. You know, that is such an offensive, that is not a polished, clean Jesus. That's not a polished, clean approach to spirituality, God, or life. That's something that's very raw and mm-hmm. honest mm-hmm. and um, provocative and makes you really wonder, do I really want to be a part of this? And I think stories like Abraham, Isaac, you should be asking, do I really want to be a part of this? What, what is this? Who is this God? Why, what? That doesn't make any sense. So I remember we, we would email and so I remember us interacting while you were there and you saying things like, I, I, I think I came to try and get to the source, but the source is like really jacked up. <laughs> remember, you know what I mean? Yeah. You saying like, I, I thought that if I came and hiked all over the Holy Land mm-hmm. and went to all the sites where these biblical stories actually unfolded, yeah. that it would somehow connect me with, oh, I'm like, yeah. I'm getting close to the source. But it didn't work that way. I think two things things happened at the same time. Um, one, when you stand there, you realize this is not a fairy tale. When you stand when you stand next to the Sea of Galilee, which is just a lake, a big lake, you realize It's like a lake with an ego. Yeah. <laughs> it's called the sea. <laughs> the sea. <Yeah. laughs> By the way, Yam in Hebrew just means body of water, so it doesn't really have that kind of grandiose thing. Um, Body of water of Galilee? But, but yeah, just <laughs> <laughs> come on my tour. I'll take you to a body of water. Um, yeah. And in Jerusalem, you realize, okay, the geography itself speaks, the landscape, the desert, the rocks, the trees, the olive groves. You realize, okay, this is, it's not a fairy tale. Real, something real happened here. But at the same time, all of the textual, textual layers and the archaeology and the scholarship and the historical critical scholarship and all this stuff, you realize that the way the story, the way you've come to understand the story, it's all unraveling. It's all unraveling. It, it's not, it, there's no way to go to Israel if you're very honest and you do a deep dive and come away and say, everything I thought going in, I just was confirmed. You know, praise God. <laughs> it's what it's what I always thought. No, that's that's wow. That that's a facade. Now people sometimes go to Israel and they come back with that, but that's because the tour companies are very smart and they give them this very tight, needy, pre you know prepackaged, neat kind of yeah. thing. Um, I went on one one of those years ago. Yeah, which was get off the bus here. Wow, this is where the Sermon on the Mount is. Can you? Aren't the acoustics amazing? Yeah. You don't need a microphone. You can talk to thousands of people. Wow, here's a sandwich. Back yeah. on the bus. Yeah, and. There's not even a deep dive into that story because look at the Sermon on the Mount. It says he turns to his disciples and says, so he's apparently not speaking to thousands of people anyway on the grand Sermon on the Mount. But there's none of that. There's, it's just this surface kind of... 
So what would be an example of something that un- began to unravel based on... Is there, are there stories that leaped out to you that you were at the site and all and it just didn't fit how it was supposed to before you ever there? Yeah, some of the some of the literalism started to unravel. I remember standing on the Mount of Olives one time with some friends. We were in class. There was kind of a lull in class, and um, my friend Keith says, just kind of quietly, he's like, "Hey, hey, hey, man, do you think the ascension was literal?" And we kind of look over at the mountain, and there are like churches and. There's like a grave cemetery. and This is the book know. of Luke. Like Jesus yeah. then just sort of lifted up into he space. Up. And you could picture it. Like it just, I guess he had a jet pack on and <laughs> lifted up through the clouds. And we just, we, we busted out laughing. And we, we, we felt guilty for sort of laughing. But we realized this whole place has so messed with our sense of what we think or thought faith was that... Just going around and saying it, it, my faith is really believing that a man shot up through the clouds right here. And if I just hang on to that literal belief after seeing the Mount of Olives, I'm going to be a person of faith. We realize we, we can't, we can't do that. There must be something else going on in the story. Then it. it's just about accepting the facts as they are written here in English and interpreted by my pastor. So then. So where did that take you? Well, um, my my first quest took me to to historical Jesus studies, which is um, looking at the Gospels from a critical point of view and saying yep. what's reliable, what's not reliable. Um, you know, was this was is there some editorial insertion here? This is all real technical. Yeah. Um, really stuff that's out of my league. I mean, Did I Jesus say this, or is this the, yeah. the community did, did 50 really years exactly. later remembering in a particular way because yeah. it was meaningful to them? Yeah. What that brought me to over time and took a very long time was a completely different understanding of what is this thing that we hold in our hands called the Bible. It's not a book in the classic sense. It's a collection of books. And inside those individual books are collections of stories. And inside those collections of stories are sometimes insertions and editorial, some editorial massaging, and sometimes theological agendas. You might have a writer that wants to get a point across, and that's not bad. I mean, everybody has a theological agenda. Every pastor that's ever given a sermon, even if they say, I'm just saying what God said, has some kind of theological agenda, and that's okay. So the gospel writers. And you begin to discover these. And and for me, it took me a long time, but I had to kind of break up with the Bible for a while. Like, let's let's just take a time out. We're not, we're not dating right now. <laughs> I don't know what we're doing, but we'll see each other occasionally. But we're this, I don't know what we're in, but it took me a long time to sort of fall back in love with it. And it was... It's convoluted messiness that sort of brought me back in. It's like, oh yeah, this is actually amazing. It's amazing that this group of people over many, many, many centuries who didn't know one another collected up these stories and they didn't make it a nice, clean, neat, tidy package. I mean, apparently, I didn't go to seminary. You did. Maybe, uh, maybe... Did you take a systematic theology class? Sure. I mean, that word is like an oxymoron if you just right. look at the Bible. There's nothing systematic nothing about it. Systematic there are, about there it. are theological patterns. I agree with that 100%. There are, the, there, there are great theological themes and patterns that run throughout many of the books, but um, it's not this carefully laid out 
you know it's yeah uh, just like life is messy um the bible is messy and that is what makes it so freaking interesting and the stories especially the ancient ones old testament stories like the one we're talking about like abraham this binding of isaac thing there's something so powerful and provocative about its sort of archetypal nature a man and his son and the future and an unknown country and a lineage and a God that he doesn't even know the God's name really. And he, and he's too old. And I mean, that is like the real stuff. And, um, and to be less concerned about is everything in here literal. I'll, I'll tell you something that helped me. My archeology span professor, Gabi Barkai, very well-known, famous archaeologist. Yeah, yeah, you can find his stuff in the Israel Museum. He's found some amazing stuff. Um, I took him for three, I had three courses in archaeology with him. Occasionally a student would say, um, but did this really happen? He's like, I don't know, I wasn't there. I mean, I don't know if it happened or not. And then he would sometimes say, the Bible's like a cake, and it has all kinds of ingredients in it. It has, um, has some story, has some poetry, it has some myth, it has some history, has some legend. Um, it has some uh, technical mistakes, like maybe a letter is messed up here or there. But what makes the Bible interesting is that you don't know how much of each ingredient is in each story. And that's why you dive in. You say, I don't know what the ingredients are here. I don't know how much actually happened. I don't know how much is story. I don't know how much is poetry. For some reason, I needed that so badly just to calm down. All right, right. calm down. Just calm down. You know, I, I mean, I don't know what it was like for you, but f- for me growing up, the Bible and God were virtually the same thing. I mean, for so many evangelicals, um, it's like the thing we're worshiping is the text. We're, we're not even worshiping the God to which the text points. We're saying it's located here. God has to be in these words exactly as I'm forcing them to be. I need it to be six literal days. Right. And that is my God. And right. that's why you get, I think, so much venom around just defending Absolutely. the Bible um, as if they're defending God. But God apparently didn't have a problem with this sort of crazy convoluted book. And most of the characters in the Bible didn't have the Bible. Abraham wasn't like, well, I, I guess I got to consult the Word of God before I, you know, get going on my journey. Or, right. you know, even Jesus, he didn't walk around with like a personal copy of Isaiah in his right. back pocket. Your you know? village may have had a copy in a closet. Yeah. In the town synagogue. And I would say maybe. Maybe, right, maybe. And in, in, in Old Testament times, nobody had it. It was it was in the realm of the elites, the priesthood and the political and religious establishment. They were the only ones that had the had the any kind of sacred, you know, document. And apparently they were fine. They weren't like, man, if we only just could carry the word to class, you know, or <laughs> you know, out in the field with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> If only some guy named Gideon wouldn't put these in hotels, we could really get something done around here. Seriously. So, uh, um, so when did you? I remember you. Then you started doing tours where you would hike, yeah, all over yeah. Sinai, Israel. Like you would yeah. take people and just take them up a mountain. I got really lucky. Uh, I got tied into a group out of um, Michigan when I was a student there, and. Uh, I led many, many tours while I lived there, and then I've continued on. I've been doing it for like ten or twelve years. I absolutely that this it's the way that I learn. I uh, maybe not everybody learns the way that I learn, but I just love the tactile nature of listening 
to these stories unfold before your eyes in roughly in the settings where these took place. And, and it's the whole walking, learning, talking, um, asking questions, essentially what Jesus was sort of up to as he wandered around. To me, that is just money. That is money. That's the way to see a place, any place, Italy, Jerusalem, LA, walk around, you talk, you see things, you ask questions. Um, and Israel, by the way, is, is such a crazy, ridiculous, weirdo kind of place. It's not just like a bunch of old stones. Like what's an example of the weirdo nature of it? I mean, you know, I have seen grown Russian Orthodox men, priests in the Holy Sepulchre, pushing old Romanian women onto the ground because they're cutting in line. You know, this kind of just like, wait, is this happening right now in church? <laughs> you know, people complain about the music in church. Yeah, but this guy just shoved an old woman onto the ground. So that kind of weird stuff and uh, all of the politics and checkpoints. And I want to go to Bethlehem to get chicken, but I got to go through this. I got to go through this checkpoint. Um, and there's like a band playing, you know, in downtown Jerusalem. On- so Bethlehem. Yeah. Little town of Bethlehem, Jesus, presence, Black Friday, all that. If you were to take us to Bethlehem, all the Robcast listeners, only a small enough group that we can actually go there, <laughs> what would you, like, how long would you take us to Bethlehem for? What would you show us? I'd take you for like a half a day, probably. A half a day. First thing I would do is take you to a place called the Herodian. It, is, it was Herod's palace in Bethlehem. So here's a little piece of history there. In the story, Herod the Great is a character in the birth narratives. And he has a palace in Bethlehem, right outside the right outside where, where the old city was. He, yeah, he built a mountain. It's like this gallus, like a volcano it looks like. He gathered up all the surrounding hillsides and built this really fortress more than more than palace. It's where he was buried. They found his tomb a, a few years ago. 200 steps, four towers, seven stories. Yeah, nice. You know more about it than I do. Oh yeah, Google image the Herodium Herodian. Herodian. Yeah. You can Google that too. Yeah. <laughs> the pictures will blow you away. Um, it's yeah, really it's incredible. Amazing. So I take you there because it overlooks the desert and you really get a sense for um, David, King David, on which the entire messianic story is built upon. Someday there'll be a king just like David way back then and he's from Bethlehem. So you get a sense and you see why Herod built his palace. He was trying to be like the Messiah. He was trying to be like King David. Because was, in the air among yeah. this tribe of people was, we once had a great king named David. He was from Bethlehem. Someday there's going to be another King David. Yeah. And so if you're Herod and you're ruling this tribe, mm-hmm. you go to Bethlehem where David was from and you build the biggest fortress possible as a way of saying, yeah. I'm the new David, yeah. which no one bought. Yeah. So you'd take us there, you'd show us the Herodian. Yeah, and uh, there'd be nobody there. And we'd have to go through a couple checkpoints and there'd be Israeli soldiers with guns. And you could, you could look out on the landscape and see, you can imagine David with the sheep. And you can also see, oh, there's an Israeli settlement. There's an illegal Israeli settlement. There are different categories. And then you'd see, uh, here's, the, here's uh, an Arab village. Here's a Palestinian village. Uh, here's a Christian church. Here's a minaret. Here's a mosque. It, and then, then I'd take you into the city. Um, I'd take you to, to the Church of the Nativity. Um, the traditional site of Jesus' birth, and I probably wouldn't even go in with you. I'd say, you go check it out yourself and tell me what you think. Oh, wait, that's where there's that little spot where they say Jesus was born? Yeah. And it's like down anything, down some stairs or something? Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. And you're like, there's no way, no. 
It's <laughs> there's yeah. no way he was born here. If, whatever that is, and, and you can actually stick here. your hand in this like hole yes. where yes. apparently Jesus. I mean, it's it's a little creepy and it's yes. it's freaky. Um, but it's also a sacred site for many, 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 many thousands of people. You realize, I think, traveling around Israel and seeing other tourists that, um, you know, American Protestant Christians are a tiny fraction of the global Christian community. And yeah. and for a lot of people, uh, taking a pilgrimage to Israel is the, a culmination of, you know, a lifetime of desires, not to see the historical Jesus, but to see those sites, yeah. you know, to see the churches, um, so you get, you get a sense that, oh, uh, whatever, whatever Christianity is, um, I'm in one tiny corner of it and I have a lot to learn. And it's in a corner of a bunch of other religions and worldviews. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, you go all over, you get to the point where you can take people anywhere and show them rainfall, topography, like yeah. politics, history, archaeology. You come back to the States, and and my observation would be, at some point I notice as your friend that it's not about just figuring out another nice, interesting, cool insight about the Bible, but it becomes about what it means to be human and about the interior journey. Yeah. And what what brought that about? I don't know. I think I had um, spiritual PTSD when I got back from Israel. I was... Um, I was like shaken and it wasn't the academic stuff. It was just life there. Life was insane. And this was a time period when there were suicide bombings. Um, wasn't a place near where you lived? Yeah. Bombed? Yeah. There was a cafe down the street. I felt it. I was typing up my computer, working on a paper. Um, had you been to that cafe a bunch? Oh yeah. Yep. How far cafe. from your house? A uh, block. Yeah. A block. Yeah. See, yeah, I could feel it in my chest, you know, when it went off. If the bomb went off, you could feel it in your chest. Yeah. Did you know it was a bomb when you yes, felt it? Yes, yes. Because this was a time period when they were happening regularly. And thank, thankfully, that kind of stuff's not taking place uh, currently. But it was it was a very chilling and, and, and also numbing experience. You're like, what am I doing? You know. So I remember the first email you sent after that. Yeah. I remember uh, you describing what that was like to walk down the street a block. And to see that sort of devastation. Yeah. Yeah. So when I returned to the States, um, I took a job as a high school teacher. And that was really good for me. I just needed something to do. Um, But yes, eventually I started to realize, um, I think that's a nice way of putting it, that the stories in the Bible are... Larger patterns yeah. are patterns uh, for the the interior, interior and real spiritual adventure that I was longing for. And I couldn't just keep going out there. Like if I went to Galilee again and, and got on a boat again, just like Jesus did and went to the... And I, and I love doing that, There's no, but, but I wasn't going to find it over there, that, that the stories were about the... They were maps for the spiritual journey, and I had to start paying paying attention to my own life, not just looking for it over there. Like if I could only get all the right interpretations right in the Bible, then you know I'd find God sort of at the end of the rainbow. I had to start paying attention to what was going on inside, and that was really hard to look at at the time because I was so rocked by it by by Jerusalem, and um, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, and that's actually what 
what I also needed, you know, I, I needed to be leveled. I needed to be knocked over. Um, so I think for so many people, um, they think if, if I just go, if I do it right, really get serious, really study, really read, read all the right books, buy all of your Rob Bell books, then, then it's, I would uh, reach this place. But what, ca- what happened to me is that I don't know, little threads just kept coming out. And it turns out the very stories in the Bible say, that's what happens. You set out and there's a death and resurrection. That is the major pattern. It's a death and resurrection. Something has to die. So my old way of looking at the Bible, my old way of looking at God, my old way of looking at Jesus, my old way of looking at church, my old way of looking at spirituality had to die. And it didn't die, thankfully, in a day. It It was slow, very slow painful death, but I had to go all the way down. Um, and I'm still there. It's still, I'm still, some things are still, you know, the glue is still dissolving for, for, uh, for me, but, uh, on the, on the upswing, something else is being born. And yeah, I, I, I did start to think about, um, I call my, I call my Israel trips, by the way, pilgrimages. So you, which I think is a great word. It's one of the seven ancient disciplines inside Christianity, ancient Christianity, to take a pilgrimage. But the point of taking a pilgrimage is that the exterior journey mirrors the interior journey. Yes, yes. And this is very, very helpful for me because I'll often, um, maybe I might be doing a Q&A and there's somebody who has a question about, let's say, a Bible passage or a spiritual idea. And there's, I pick up, like my spirit picks up a certain anxiety or something unresolved in the question, that it, it's not the question they have, it's the, the spirit animating the question, which I realize now is, if I could just get this sorted, then. Yeah, there's always something else though. <laughs> right, and so you essentially are like, hey, Bible boy, or whoever has, you went over there, lived there became an expert guide, went to the very heart of the thing. Yeah. And you're like, oh, you can get every single Bible passage or spiritual idea or enlightenment theory. You can go all the way into the heart of it. But if you're going into it as an external thing, if I just get this system, this thought, this answer, uh, but those are all patterns of that which has to take place inside you. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And that will always involve the thing that isn't working has to die. Yeah. The thing that isn't bringing you life that's no longer... Because I meet people all the time who are like, I grew up with this thing, I was handed this thing, I was educated in this thing, and now it doesn't work. Is there some, like, hack? It's like, no, you're pretty much going to have to die to all the stuff that's not working. Yeah. And until you die to it, you aren't going to be able to be born into the next thing. Yeah. And see, I think a lot of religious teachers, voices, books, pastors, and they do it. I mean, a lot of times they do it uh, in good faith. They just want to keep patching together something. So the moment they hear this person has a question about X, we need to quickly patch that up. We need to yeah, say, no, an no, 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 answer no. To X. Yeah, we've got an answer and don't spend any, don't hang out there too long uh, because your anxiety is mirroring back to us our own anxiety, which we don't want to face. And yes. that is a, a sick and unhealthy religious culture. And 
but thankfully, I mean, you don't have to stay there. You can get out. You can you can get out. You don't you don't have to stay in this kind of right. You can keep going. Yeah, you don't have to stay in an environment that continually wants to to shove it down, to put it in some black bag and not face it. Um, yeah, it's interesting on this on this how to be here tour I'm doing now. Every single city, at least several people ask some version of, I've seen something, tasted something. Um, I'm moving forward. I'm seeing it in a new way. And my family, sometimes even spouse, coworkers, church, roommates, whatever, don't see it. Mm. And um, so this person is voicing new expanded views, consciousness, beliefs, etc. And the system that they're in is terrified. Mm. Because it. if we just let you keep doing that, yeah. um, we have to woo you back in, or we have to expunge you. But we can't have you growing like this in our midst, because you're voicing the stuff that is the deepest thing that we don't want to talk about, because mm-hmm. it's terrifying. Which is why, I mean, that, I mean, which is why the hero's journey is so interesting, because the, the real hero's journey, you leave, you leave the village, and you're you're you don't you're not victorious. You're actually dismembered. You come apart, yes. but you do return with a gift for the community. Yep. But we have, uh, especially inside Christianity, we don't want anybody going out. We don't want anybody going on the journey, and therefore we don't receive any new gifts from anyone. We just keep saying, don't go anywhere, don't go anywhere, don't go anywhere. There are even, you know, all the statistics about young people leaving the church and millennials not going to the church. I'm like, finally, finally somebody is, you know, go. Go, go as far go. as you can. Go, right, right. And when things fall apart, which they will, come back and give us a gift because we're dying. We're dying <laughs> yeah, over yeah. here for some yeah. like fresh person to wander in from the wilderness and say, I've been out here for like 40 days and it was hell, but I have like some new insights. Yes. Like I, I can see something that I could not see before, <laughs> but we don't want it. We don't want that. We don't want that. Every time I meet a parent who's like, my, my kid is searching, what should I do? I'm always like, join them. <laughs> yeah, How exactly. much fun would that be? Get in Go line. Yeah. How do you realize the worst, if your job is to try to keep your kid where you are, the worst possible sell job is to be threatened by your kid's search. Yeah. Nothing is more is less interesting than I don't know. Go with them. Yeah. Go. Go search with them. See what happens. Now, what did you So so what happened is you began to under, to to realize wait, this is about the thing happening to me. This is about history, past all this stuff brewing inside of me. And where did that take you? Well, Thankfully, uh, at the tail end of my time in Israel, when I was at the Hebrew University, I started taking some courses in Christianity. Like I went there to learn about Judaism, and then I started to get interested in Christianity. So I took a few courses on Eastern Christianity, Eastern mysticism, Desert Fathers, and I realized, oh wait, there are hundreds of voices, I wouldn't say thousands, hundreds of voices that are speaking about the very thing that I long have been longing for. It's actually inside my own tradition, but it's been in the caves and back alleys of Christianity and not in the mainstream, not in the Orthodox doctrines and, you know, um, high church and Rome and nothing wrong with Rome, but it's, it's been under like everything, like the Jesus movement, there has been something happening on the fringes. 
Um, the whole time. Yes. And so words like contemplation and mysticism, that those, I mean, you know, I read that stuff in, in, in graduate school. I read the mystics in graduate school. That is not the same as becoming a mystic. You don't read the, you know, the cloud of unknowing and then you're enlightened. You, you're, you read it and you're like, holy crap, you know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Right, 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 right. And so that's what happened to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. And when I got back to Grand Rapids, uh, Manny and I both took a course from uh, the Dominicans uh, on spiritual formation, and we reread these texts. I was reading the same text from Dominican sisters as I had read in graduate school, but not. I wasn't reading them as an academic. I was reading them as an open-hearted, spiritually thirsty somebody human being. thirsty right yes i was like oh there there's something here so it started me down how would you explain the mystics to somebody who's like oh, uh, easy wait what do you mean easy a mystic is someone who has an experience of the divine that is a mystic it's not fancy ways of speaking it's not like clever poetry it's not it is someone who has a, an experience of the divine and uh, one usually that rocks them turns their life inside out they shave their head and they sell all their clothes like St. Francis. You know, that, that something happens that, um, in their words, is a divine experience. And their language about it is just their way of working it out. Um, so, whatever they write. I mean, St. Francis didn't write anything. His, his uh, followers did. But the writings of the mystics are their ways of trying to name their the own unique experience of the divine. It's like the prophets. What makes a prophet? It's not someone who predicts the future. Um, it's not someone that God like whispers in their ear, like, hey, when you get up in the morning, make sure you write down Isaiah chapter five, you know? Um, no, they have, they're rocked by an experience. They have a vision. They wake up one day and they see in the, in the heavens a, a beast and they're like, my life will never be the same. And they spend the rest of their time, I think, trying to work some of that stuff out. So those are the mystics, and they're worth reading because they they are saying, "This is this is my experience of God. This is what it was like," um, and and it just opens up all these kind of internal passages in your own heart that all right, maybe you know, and your own longing for divine experience. That's what people want. They want divine experience. So, and oftentimes the mystics, um, and those of you listening might be like, "Wait, we're talking about me now." Um, you, you may resonate with this, those of you listening to, about the mystics, the mystics often are on the fringes of the institution. Often? I can't think or of any al- of that. always, yeah. because the institution needs clarity and definition to function, yeah. and needs a controlled vision of the divine or the good or whatever, yeah. and that the mystic is the one who's had an experience of that which can't be named, and thus, if you can't name it, you can't control it mm-hmm. and manipulate it and keep it under wraps. So generally, the most interesting experiences are always around the fringes yeah. of the thing. Yeah, the entire is Bible is obviously a... happening now, which has obviously been happening for thousands of years. Yeah, and all of the characters in the Bible that um, had experiences of God, they were all fringe people. Who was Abraham? Some random dude, you right? Know, who, who left? Were. Yeah. That's what we know. Or Jacob, a guy who lies and yeah. you know, and then all of a sudden one day he lays down on a stone and on the earth. And, and he, this, you know. And this is the huge thing right now because of all of the people I meet everywhere who are having these experiences and they don't fit within the party line and they're feeling alone and lonely and isolated and it's like I just want I don't even know how to amplify it enough 
No, you're part of the tradition. Yeah. This is the tradition. Yeah. The tradition is the loneliness that comes from an experience that doesn't fit within whatever the prevailing decision has been about these kinds of experiences. Yeah. 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 I'll give you an example. Like, um, I felt like I did not know who God was. I do not, I do not know God's name. I do not know what God is. And somewhere by some, you know, miracle, <laughs> I, I came across the apophatic tradition, which is a whole tradition inside of Christianity that says we do not know right. anything about God. Right. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought I was like the loner, you know, like I'm, you know, it was atheism or, you know, a Baptist preacher. Those were the two, two right. extremes, you know, but I realized, oh no. The mystics were saying, oh, yeah, at a certain point, you don't know anything about God. It's it, And basically, the definition is just what we don't What know. we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. What? No, no images. Yes. Oh, God is our father. God is not our father. The apophatics say, no, he's not. Father, that's meaningless. There's God. That can't be a father. And you're just <laughs> like, you know, or even God exists. That's a, you know, yes, God exists. The apophatic tr- tradition would say God does not exist. He does not exist in any way that you understand existence. And see, that that's what I'm saying. And... To, to embrace that and to say, oh, my word. Okay, maybe there's something to this. Absolutely. You know? And that that was actually a thriving, vibrant tradition. Yep, yep. Again, and, in the back alleys. But, right. But, but that's why the institution, you know, the popes in Rome uh, weren't stupid. Our, our, the current pope right now, I mean, he may, he may be a mystic for all, for all we know. He has always been attracted to the edges. He's always been attracted to the mystics as far as what he's been, been saying. They need one another. It's like the kings needed the prophets and, uh, you know, the pastors need the crazy people on the edges, you know? Yeah. Um, they need the teenagers who, I don't know. Right poke fun at the whole thing and yeah. challenge the whole thing because that's where it's lifeblood. That's right. where the thing right. is, is, yeah. is if it can't allow itself to be challenged and critiqued and even mocked, then it's actually really weak, not strong. That's right. A sign of its strength is it's, it's f- flexible and limber and able to be um, poked and prodded. Yeah, yeah. So what took you into um, personal... Uh, we were talking recently about the ego and mm. image yeah. and... Yeah. Well, uh, I think what happened to me is I also realized I need some help. I need some help, help. I don't need just to read another book. So part of the spiritual formation course class at the Dominican Center, they encouraged us to get a spiritual director. And this was really the first time in my life you know, my dad was a pastor, so I had all the answers ready-made, you know, dad, what does this mean? Or, you know, I grew up in a very certain world. Um, so I'd never been to a therapist, counselor, spiritual director, and just to sit down and say, this this is what I'm feeling, this is what's going on. It took me a while to even get used to saying, this is what's going on in my life. Um, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling. Um, is that okay? You know? And that was my spiritual, I've had two spiritual directors. Um, but that opened up, um, an in, it, it started to help me gain a little bit of interior language for what is going on. And, and then, I, then, then that became a whole nother country I had yet to visit. And mm-hmm. I started to get interested in, in things like psycho-spiritual work and 
and eventually I got a therapist and, and I started reading, you know, some, some psychotherapist that, that I was attracted to. Um, I started doing work with this, with the, with a guy named Bill Plotkin who has the Animus Valley Institute in Colorado, where these are wilderness experiences that are, um, meant to, to help you in your own psycho-spiritual growth, meant to help you grow up to put it simply. So I started doing that kind of work, you know, um, and just trying to do a, a deep dive into um, what is going on. I think one of the things that became evident to me, and and uh, or at least works for me as a map, I had spent a lot of my time looking up into the heavens. You know, who is God? What is God? Where is God? What is theology? Who is Jesus? You know, he's got to be out there somewhere. And, um, and looking for divine connection and the upward spiritual journey, prayer and, and, but I hadn't done much of a interior, what is the soul? And so that, that journey, it seems to me, the journey toward God, which tends to look like an upward journey. I don't mean that too literally. And the downward journey into the depths of your own being are absolutely essential. They're two sides of the same coin. You cannot do one without the other. And I had some serious deficiencies. That's been what the last couple of years have been for me trying to get down to the bottom. What is there? Is there a true self? I started reading Thomas Merton, you know, wait a minute, true self, false self. You know, what, what is he even talking about? You know, <laughs> what is down there? Well, you um, talked to me about love, is it love and soul? We were talking, ego, ego and, and soul. soul. Yeah. So ego in spiritual circles, as you probably know, gets a bad, bad rap. It's like, oh, everything is, you know, can't have, can't have an ego. You got to get the ego out of the way. And sometimes that's very helpful for people, especially the way ego is used uh, in a contemporary sense, but ego is simply your personality persona, um, this part of yourself that gets things done in the world. You wake up in the morning, you're like, you know what, I'm going to write a book today, or I'm going to write one chapter of a book, or I'm going to fly to Los Angeles and I'm going to see Rob. You know, the, the ego is involved, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get out of bed. Uh, drive, motivation. Drive, motivation. Yeah. yeah. Even personality. You go to a party, your ego's involved. You don't have to get it out of the way. It's okay. Um, but the ego doesn't know what's important. The ego doesn't know what's valuable. The ego doesn't know what it should do in life in the grand scheme of things. It just wants to do things. And the problem is most people only hang out in that world. So they think, I got to be, my ego needs something to do and it's got to be the right thing to do. So it's a perpetual quest for, I got to have this job or that job or this relationship or that relationship because the ego doesn't know what is ultimately important, but the soul knows. The soul is the image you had before you were born. It is your true self. It is probably some kind of image. Um, it's it's the place you are meant to inhabit in what the does, world. What does some kind of image mean? Well, I just mean it's hard to put into words. Oh, got it. Okay. The, the soul speaks in images. You know, if you read the great, even the great mystics, the great poets, they speak in imagery because that's the thing how are you supposed to describe? I mean, if you were to uh, if yeah, you were yeah. to talk about what's really going on, I mean, in your heart or your soul, right, deep right, down, right. what would you say? I mean, what right, would because you say you, about that? Because if you tried to use standard uh, scientific definitive language, it doesn't sound... You end up saying things like, ah, it feels like the song's in the wrong key. Yeah. Or it, it feels... Yeah. it. You end up... It's like... Yeah. Because you can't get very technical or specific. I think the soul... I think people can sense when their soul is coming alive, when they have that, sometimes it can feel like a gut instinct or um, all of a sudden something wakes up inside and they say, no, I'm not going to do that. 
or yes, that that's it. That's it. Um, something wakes up from, from down in the depths of your own being and it, it resonates something in your chest. Something below the chin. Yes. Yeah. But, something in the seat of your being knows, and you might not even have logical, rational, analytic descriptors and language mm-hmm. for it, but yet you know, it will even say, I know it more than I know anything. Yeah. Just well, not in the normal way I know things. You know, here's an example. Maybe you wouldn't, maybe you wouldn't say this is true, but you, you, you've told me before that when you came out to LA or when you were thinking of leaving Grand Rapids and, and, and coming out, coming out West, you came out and you're like, yep, we're going to move right here. You know, <laughs> what was that? You weren't, it wasn't the calculative ego mind saying, well, if I do this and do this, and if I get this house and this house, something was like, no, right here. Boom. Right. We belong here. I don't, I'm not saying for all of eternity, but I'm saying I'm going here. It's like a cellular, yeah, yeah. atomic knowledge where your whole body is yes. like, yep. So this is why the ego and the soul have to fall in love because your soul can ring. You can be like, I have to be by the beach here, or I got to be in this canyon, or I've got to live, you know, I, I want to be near this place, but th- the soul can't get it done. So it's in love with the ego because the ego can do it. The ego can say, don't worry about it, guys. Look, we've got our assets. We can, we can liquidate. We can liquidate Hustle. and make this baby happen. Yeah. And the soul is just enraptured by this. Amazing. Right. And the ego for the first time is doing what it's doing, but now it's doing it because it's talking to the soul instead of on its own desperate search for identity. Just and, something to grab hold yeah, of just, and grasp. Yeah, just grasping at things. So... Um, the ego and the soul have to fall in love yeah. and work together. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you have all this resonance and truth, but no way to enact any of it. Yeah. Or you have all this action, busyness, worry, stress, anxiety, climbing, mm-hmm. achieving, but not in the service of anything greater. Yeah, that's right. So it's just you're in the corner office making lots of money, but you're bored out of your mind. Your kids, they have perfect teeth and perfect clothes, and you're carpooling them each day, and it's all great, but you have no sense that any of it ma- it it doesn't have some larger thing yeah so the two have to come together yeah i think so and yeah. now you got something yeah and it's a dance just like dating it takes a while and i've just been in a season of my life where i'm trying to to do as deep as deep of a dive as i can into the into the soul and into what makes me tick and yeah. the uniqueness of being me and that's not a selfish thing so many especially christians they're told that that their unique self has got to go you know all oh, right if you enjoy um, it whatever you do, don't do it exactly yeah that's <laughs> the one thing you shouldn't do you should deprive yourself of that but that's nonsense and um and but it requires a lot of trust you got you got and for many of people the problem with listening to the soul is so many voices around them have weighed in on their soul. Yes. Like, yeah. that's not legit. We don't do that in yeah. this family. You can't have a career in that. Yeah. And so for many people, just listening to the soul yeah. takes practice and time and patience and skills and techniques and hours. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because to, to even say, well, what's your soul saying or what is it or what's your true self speaking to you is like learning a new language. Yeah. I don't know. I have been serving this person and living up to this person's expectations and trying to impress these people for so long. Listen to Mary Oliver. She says, one day you finally knew what you had to do and you began. One day, she doesn't say what it is. She just says, one day you finally knew what you had to do and you began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. And that's where most people get stuck. The voices around them keep shouting, don't do it. 
You can't do it. You're going to get hurt. You're going to hurt us. This is not going to make sense. You're going to ruin your life. You're going to end up living in a van down by the river. Don't do it. But that, that, and that is just the way it is. When you start to listen and say, one day, one day you finally knew what you had to do and you began. That's what it started. Uh, when, I, when I left Mars Hill, it started with a poem, honestly, and a lot of other circumstances. But I read that poem every day for a year. I didn't know what it was. One day you finally knew what you had to do and you began. I was starting to begin, you know? I, and that's as soon as you start down that path, everyone starts shouting, don't do it. And, and she also says, the voices around you start shouting their, their bad advice saying, mend my life. Mend my life, each voice cried. Fix me. Fix me, fix me, fix me. If you go, I'm going to be in serious trouble. Don't do it. You know? This is, uh, this is why we need mystics and poets. There it is. That's two lines of one poem. You know? That's, that's someone who has gone on the journey herself. Yeah. She didn't say, here's a clever idea I'd like to try out. No, she knew. She did that at one point in her life or at several Absolutely. points. Absolutely. You can't write that unless you know yep. what that is. Yeah, yep. yeah. That was already late in a wild night. She also says that. It was already late. And that's what it feels like. Oh, I should have done this years ago. It was already late and a wild night. <laughs> and there were, you know, branches yes. in the road. Whenever you step forward into to greater life and vitality, and there's always a cost, yeah. and there's always a discussion you have on the other side, which is why didn't I do this earlier? Yeah, but you weren't you, yeah. you weren't this person earlier. But slowly, the stars begin to burn through the sheets of cloud, sheets of clouds, and you start to recognize a voice. You start to hear a voice. You start to hear a voice that you slowly recognize as your own. And that's what people want. They want their own voice, don't they? Yes. I mean, that's what I want. Absolutely. And, and it's a slow recognition. Wait a minute, who is talking right now? <laughs> right. Who, who is living like this right now? Th that's the true self. That's the true self coming to life. Whew. That's what I want, man. That's so fantastic. Friends, you have met my beloved friend, Kent Dobson. As you can see, he continues to inspire. By the way, for those of you, historical note, when I left the church that we had started in 2011, Kent was the teacher who uh, became the teacher at the church we started in, in Grand Rapids for the past couple of years. So um, that's the beautiful sort of way all of this story has woven together. And now Kent and Mandy are moving on to the next thing. But for a few days, he's been here in California with us, and this was fantastic. Thanks, Rob. I'm so glad. Um, you're, you're more inspiring than ever. So yep. are you. Now, uh, people, if they want to see some of your writing, yeah. Kent Dobson, where do they go? Yeah, I mean, I do have a website, kentdobson.com. They can buy the NIV First Century Study Bible if they want to do a little bit of a dive into uh, historical... It, it, Cultural yeah. stuff and rabbinic stuff. If you're the person who's always like, wait, where do you get all this interesting stuff about the Bible? Yeah. Kent did an actual study Bible. What is it again? The NIV? The NIV First Century Study Bible. And that's actually, it's actually for the person who asks, where do you get this stuff? Because that's what I got all the time. All right, I'll try to give you at least Here a little is. taste, a Here little taste of where I get some so of this stuff. So you made a Bible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. So, yeah, Anything they can, else where people can get a hold of what you I mean, you're they can, if they go to my website, they can check out my tours. I'm going to continue to take people to Israel. I really do love that. I, I'll, I have a book coming out next February, if all goes well, if I 
do all the hard okay. work. Book coming next year, and if people literally want to go hike in Israel with you, that's possible. All info on your website. Yep. Yep. There you have it, my friends. Another friend that we all love. Grace and peace, everybody. Thank you, Kent. Thank you.